Good morning. So good to see you guys on this, uh, on this Palm Sunday. Uh, what, a special, what a special day it is for us as believers, right, to, to, to look into and, and consider and think about uh, just this Passion Week. Um, a couple of things really quick. Uh, announcements. We, we aren't going to be doing uh, announcements anymore during the worship service. We, we find it to just be kind of disruptive to worship, honestly. So, so those things are all over the place, though. So, so we have all kinds of means of communicating. For one thing, they're going to roll in before and after the services on the, on the TVs. Uh, they're in the bulletin. They're on Facebook. They're in the email that we send out every week, and they're on the app. So if you haven't got the app, our app is actually our best way of communicating. Um, it's updated very regularly and stuff. It's going to be your best means for, for staying communicated, communicating within the church and the church communicating with you. So just know that. That's kind of where we're at right now. Also, too, we have next steps this morning for anybody who might be new, who might be wanting to kind of check us out and, and, and find out a little bit more about us and, and what it looks like in the church, what we're about, and, and, and kind of who we are and, and where you could serve in the church. Uh, next steps is a series of three different kind of groups. Um, we, we go through the gospel in one group. We, uh, we, we talk about the church, our, our statement of faith and our belief and where we stand on different uh, items. And then the one we do a spiritual gift survey too and, and, and talk about opportunities to serve uh, within the church. So love to have you um, if, if that might be for you. Uh, just an encouragement too this week to you know, this is a big week for us as believers. This is, this is, this is the week, right? This is, this is everything. The, the resurrection is, is, is the, the foundation, absolutely, of our faith. And like I've said many times before, you know, the gospel is the hope for the unbeliever, but for the believer, the hope is the resurrection, that we are looking forward to the resurrection. And thank God it's the, the reality for us, right, that we aren't just subject to the things of this world, to the temporal things that are happening in this world even right now, that we serve something and we believe in something that will transcend the whole of it, right? And so, so we have a better destination um, in mind because of Jesus' resurrection. We can have a hope that can transcend any struggle that can come against us, any tragedy that comes our way. We can stand in the face of that because we understand that in ultimate reality, we're not subject to the things of this world. It doesn't mean that they're not hard and doesn't mean that they're not real, it does mean that we have a higher hope than this world offers. So, um, open up your Bible, turn your Bible on, whatever you've got going, and we're going to look this morning at this idea of this humble king. Now, again, this morning is, is obviously, it's, it's Palm Sunday, and we're, we're looking at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as he comes in on Sunday, the first day of the week. And, but I want us to kind of, we're going to try to get an overview of the whole of the week, things that are coming and how all of these things tie together and what Jesus is kind of trying to show a bigger picture in through uh, just the events that are taking place. <coughs> so um, all four gospel give the account of this triumphal entry that, that Jesus is going on. Uh, it, it kind of begins, I'm not really going to read through all of this stuff. We're going to be kind of skipping through a lot of stuff here. But we're going to look at the idea here of this. So it begins basically with Jesus sending a couple of his disciples up and saying, hey, there's a guy, there's, you're going to go, you're going to find this, this, uh, this colt, uh, the foal of a donkey, 
um, and, and go get it. And if anybody asks you why you might need this thing, tell them that the Lord has need of it and bring it to me. And, and so just this really cool account, I think just, just really a quick kind of a thought for us. The things that we have and the things that we possess, are we willing to have them be vessels of, of, of some form of use by Jesus? In other words, are we holding on to our things too tightly? Or if the Lord had need of it, would we be willing to just let it go and let it be used for him and for his kingdom? So, again, we talk every year about this, but it is important. A king riding into a city, mounted on a donkey, was a king that was coming to seek peace with that city. If he'd been riding on a, on a, on a stallion or, a, or a, a horse, he would have been coming to make war. So we see that in Revelation. We see uh, in Revelation 19, we see Jesus coming back in his return, and he's, he's not riding on a donkey then. He, he's riding uh, on, a, on a horse, a white horse, and he's coming back as the judge of the world. But here he's coming to make peace with the world. It's also a fulfillment of a, of, a, of a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. And so we see Jesus, and as he's coming, let's remember that we're seeing that, that, um, that, that the crowds are just everywhere, that, 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 that all of the things of Jesus' ministry, all of the, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, and, and so there are people that have seen that, and, and, and people who are coming to see more, and so there's just throngs of people that are welcoming Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem. And in particular, they are saying, Hosanna, which means save us. And as Lisa pointed out this morning, the very word Jesus or Yeshua or Joshua means to save. And so we're calling out for Jesus to save, and they're also saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're putting down their coats, and they're putting down palm branches. And as they're doing that, they're proclaiming him to be king. They're making the absolute statement that he is the king who's coming, that he is the Messiah. There is no doubt about it. So much so that in the, cha- in the book of Luke, in chapter 19, we see that, that the Pharisees are going, hey, get your people to kind of mellow out here a little bit because they're, they're pushing on blasphemy here what they're saying about Jesus as he rides in. Jesus' response to that is he tells them, hey, if, if they don't cry out, then the rocks will. The, the rocks will cry. If, this is it. This is the moment. And what an amazing picture in the gospel because this is the only place I think that we see where he's rightfully being crowned as king. Now understand this. He's king regardless. He's king regardless of what anybody says about him. He's the king who's, who's, who sits on the throne. He's the king with a kingdom. And whether anybody recognizes that or not, this is a truth that prevails through all of history. This is the reality today. He still is a king who reigns on a throne. And all of creation gives glory to God. This is why the rocks are going to cry out if the people don't. Um, Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God Romans 1 tells us that, that God's creation is his first means of revelation to us as people. And in this moment and in this time, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to fulfill his ministry, if the people don't cry out, the rocks are going to. 
You see, people are made to proclaim the glory of God. It's who we are. It's, it's part of how we were created to be. We were created to proclaim his glory, to praise his name, and rocks just aren't. And the question for us today is that, is are we proclaiming his kingdom and his glory in all facets of life, in every manner of life, as we, as we do life, as we move forward through life, are we shouting his kingdom to the world around us, or are we silent? Because this is an opportunity. This is the opportunity for the church. The church's function, the church's primary function is worship. Our primary function, the very first thing that we do, it's why we meet here and we sing together first, is our first goal is to worship God. And then from there, it's, it's, to, it's to proclaim his glory as we go out of this place and into the world and we interact with the world and we go out and we have the unique interactions that, that only you have throughout this week. The question is, is will you be proclaiming his glory or will we be silent? Because we have this amazing opportunity to join him in what he's going to do in the world around us. Now, it doesn't mean that if you don't do it, he's not going to do it. We won't thwart his plans in this world, but you may miss your opportunity to be a part of what he's doing. There's nothing more exciting than living our lives for what God has for us, for, for our participation, for our touch point into his kingdom. There's no better thing. So Jesus, his triumphal entry, let's remember this, it did not end at Jerusalem. Didn't enter just go, it didn't end just going into the city, may, should I say. It ended going into the temple. Jesus, ultimately, his triumphal entry took him all the way into the temple. And the temple was his house, in a sense, at this point, right? It's his house. It's his place. So Jesus goes in, and he goes to the temple, and he looks around, and he sees what's going on. After that, it says he retreated to Bethany, which is a little town about two miles outside of Jerusalem. The word Bethany means house of the poor. You see, the rich people were staying in Jerusalem. They were staying at all the nice Airbnbs and all that kind of stuff. And all the prices were jacked up in town just like they are when there's a big event in any kind of a town. So only the rich people were staying in Jerusalem. But Jesus, he retreats and he goes out and he goes to Bethany. And most likely, he's staying with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, who he tended to stay with when he was in Bethany. You see, Jesus would rather stay with those who love him for who he is not those who love him only for what he can do for them. So we see then that that, that, that kind of culminates Sunday. So today, and, and here's what we're going to do. Every day, I'm going to just send out on the app or the email or Facebook, we're going to send out just a little devotional. And, and, and the encouragement is going to be to refocus on the things that we're talking about today and refocus and think about this week because we don't want this week just to be a week like every week or you know, we, we really want to take this week and go deeper, to go deeper with the Lord together um, as we look into this. Now, Monday, we see this interesting thing. It says that Jesus leaves Bethany, and he heads back towards Jerusalem, and he goes by this fig tree, or he sees a fig tree. He sees it off in the distance, it says, and it's full of leaves. And so he says he goes up to the fig tree, and upon inspection of it, he finds no figs on the tree. And so he curses the fig tree, and he says that you'll produce nothing anymore, and he withers this. He puts his curse on this tree, and it says that it's not the season for figs. Interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, it's just, 
It's a difficult verse because we're like, what the heck, Jesus? It seems so out of, out of step for Jesus. It's like not fluffy lamb, nice Jesus stuff. He's like, okay, there's no fruit on you. Bam, you're done. <laughs> I don't know what is up. It seems inconsistent with Jesus. What's up with him just cursing this poor little fig tree that didn't do anything? But what we have to understand is that this fig tree is a prophetic object lesson. And Jesus is using this fig tree as, as a correlation with the people of Israel and the temple and the law. And, and basically, what, what's going on here is that, honestly, there should have been and could have been fruit on that tree. There, there's a thing that happens on a, on, on, a, on a fig tree that is mature, the wood that, that had the, uh, the, the crop on it from the year before, the old wood, would produce what's called a braba crop of figs. So when he went up to it, it wasn't really that out of context or out of character that it had no figs on it. It could have had a braba crop. It should have, on its old wood, had a crop. It should have bore fruit. This is what's where he's making this correlation. He, he, but, but because it didn't, he's now going to get rid of this thing, and he is going to... Um, he is going to uh, do something different. And, and that's what he's beginning to try to show us here. You see, Israel is the tree, and throughout Scripture we see a, a, a regularly that, that Israel is compared to a fig tree. He expected to find fruit. He went all winter without fruit. He was looking really forward to it. He's kind of like us who's looking really forward to some green grass or something right now, and it just wasn't there. So we have the nation of Israel, we have the temple, and we have the era of the law that are being represented. In Matthew 3.10, we see this. Um, and this is uh, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, he, he says this. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so Jesus then moves his way into Israel, and, and, and he's going to go to the temple. And, and Mark has this way of making these story sandwiches, is what he does. So, so now this is like the top part of this story sandwich, is this idea with the fig tree and what happened with it. And now what's going to go in the middle is his interaction into the temple. See, and the takeaway for us is this. You see, we're made to bear fruit, too. And the, and, and the temple was made to bear fruit. And the religion that God had gave the people was meant to bear fruit. But when Jesus went into the temple, he saw something very different. You see, as you go into Israel, as people would move into Israel and, and, and were coming up the road into it, the, the, they had taken the, the treasuries of the temple and they continued to just put more and more and more and more gold onto this thing up to the point where if the sun was shining on it, it was just this thing that was, and it was the pride of Israel, that the temple was. And so, so it was this beautiful thing, that this national source of pride, and Jesus goes into this temple, and what does he see? He goes into the first court, the outer court, which is the court of the Gentiles. This is the place where everybody is supposed to have access to. You see, the further you go into the temple, the more restricted the access is. Anybody can be in the outer courts, but then there's a court where women can go into. 
And then there's a court that's inside of that that you have to be a man. And then you have to be, to go inside of that or to start to go inside of the temple itself or into the holy place, you have to be of the Aaronic priesthood. And to go into the most holy place, you could only go in once a year, and that was only as the high priest. But this was the place where everybody was welcome. This was the place where everybody was supposed to be able to hear the gospel from. And what's going on is that people are actually using it as a shortcut Remember, the city is it's booming. It's busting at the seams. There, there, are, there are hundreds of thousands of people and pilgrims that have come on to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so people are they're, they're using it as a cut across to get from one side of the town to the other. And, and, and people are selling doves in there. And, and they're not just selling doves, but they're also doing an exchange for currency because, you see, before you could buy something in the temple, you had to first trade for shekels, which was the, the, the accepted form of currency by the Jewish people. So you had to trade whatever kinds of money you had for shekels, and then you could purchase things. Well, they were, they were cutting bad deals. They, were, they, were, they weren't doing a good exchange with that money. And, and then people were coming in, and they were, the poor people could, were, were offering, if you couldn't buy a lamb, then you came and you, you bought a dove. And, and outside of the temple, the doves were uh, 25 times cheaper than they were inside of the temple. And not only that, but when the people, if they bought a dove from the outside and they came and they showed it to one of the priests, the priest would reject it and tell them they had to buy one from there. Caiaphas, the high priest, is very likely renting out the best spaces for the highest bidders. His father-in-law, Annas, was, was known for the amount of wealth that he had accumulated in his time as high priest. And so Jesus comes, and he sees all of this going on. You see, the temple had become corrupt, and it wasn't, it wasn't operating in the, in, the, in the function, in the form that it was intended to. It wasn't bearing fruit. He goes in there, and instead of it, he begins to proclaim it as a, as a den of thieves, right? He says it's supposed to, that his house is supposed to be a house of prayer, a place where where, where people are coming to know who this God is and they're offering prayer up to him. But he says in, instead, it's become this den of thieves. <clears throat> Jeremiah 7.11 is, is one place where he gets this idea of a den of thieves. And it was, a, it was a prophecy about the destruction of the first temple. And in a way, Jesus is giving a prophetic word for the destruction of the second temple here, which ultimately would be destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. But you see, just as the tree had left Jesus hungry and unsatisfied, so did the temple when he went in there and he saw what was going on. They were not fulfilling their intended functions. And so basically, he overturns the tables, right? The tax, the, the exchange tables, he, he, he flips them all over and it says that he makes a, a whip out of, out of some cords and he goes, he didn't start whipping people. I mean, cord, uh, whips are meant to drive stock and he drove all the livestock, which is the money right out of the temple, and I'm sure that the people who owned them followed. And he drove everybody out of that place, and he opened it up so that it would be the place that it's intended to be. You see, God has a righteous and jealous anger that is right. And it was right when Jesus went in, and he saw that, that the people of God and that his home, his house, wasn't, wasn't being operating in the, in the form that it was meant to, that it had become something else. And, and, and so I, I think one of our takeaways from that is this, is that today the temple is where? It's here. It's in God's people, right? 
the Holy Spirit inside of us, that, that God doesn't, he doesn't dwell in temples that are made by human hands. He dwells in the hearts of his people. And, and, and this temple needed a cleansing. Maybe it's a good time for us to evaluate our temple and how we're doing with some of these things and where we're at and maybe asking the Lord to cleanse our temple as well as we, as we move forward in this. First Peter 2.5 um, it does remind us of that, that, that we are God's temple. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. <coughs> this is who we are. Sometimes we need to be reminded of, of who we are, why we're here. And what we're doing, it's so easy to get caught up in the world and all of the things that are going on to, to start to grab all of the things that are going by us. But God is asking us to have a loose hands, to, to have just loose hands with those kinds of things. It's not that some of those things are bad even. It's just that sometimes our perspective on those things, our attachment to those things uh, moves them into more of an idolatry kind of a place in our lives. So once again, Jesus retreats back and... He goes back to Bethany after having cleansed the temple. And, and then the next morning, which would be roughly Tuesday morning, uh, they, they come back out and they see this withered tree. And, and this tree now has withered. And Jesus then goes ahead and he gives them the recipe for what is to come. Because you see, he's about to upend everything. You see, this was the tree that didn't bear fruit. The temple itself was the tree that wasn't bearing fruit. And now the axe is laid at the root of this thing, and he's going to cut the whole thing down, and he's going to begin a whole new thing. And this is that bottom part of that sandwich in the story that we see with this, with this uh, fig tree. And, and so um, Jesus does this. Um, he, he tells them uh, to have faith. He doesn't tell them to have faith in faith. He says, trust in God. He doesn't tell them to trust in religion. He doesn't tell them to trust in faith. Sometimes we have too much faith in faith. He says, trust in God. And then he says this. He says, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. You see, the mountain is always, a, it, it, it's a picture, it's, it's, it, it's imagery for that impossible circumstance in your life. Just that mountain, that thing that seems unmovable, that thing that seems like it's too much, like you could never get past it or beyond it or around it or over it or anything like that. And Jesus is saying, in these hard times, and, and we're a people that are living in hard times, interesting times, Exciting times, I'll encourage us. But, but that there's no mountain that he can't overthrow, overthrow, that there's nothing that he can't do, that when our faith is in him, he can cast it off into the sea. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. So it's an interesting thing, faith, belief, and forgiveness. Unforgiveness is a hindrance to our prayers. Unforgiveness is, a, is that thing that, that shackles us to the past, leaving us unable to move forward. You see, the, the, 
the way out of the struggles, the hurts that have been put upon us, the hurts that we've done to others, the shame in our life, and all of those kinds of things. The way out of those things is forgiveness. Either being forgiven by God for our past and what we've done, or forgiving others for what they've done for, to us. It's the way forward, and it's an absolute necessity in the life of a believer. From here, Jesus' authority begins to be challenged by the religious leaders of the day there. There's really four groups that really begin to come against him, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the scribe. And we see that start to happen in, in, in chapter 12 here. Jesus begins by telling a parable, and, and then basically they try to put him into a trap. They try to put him either into a political trap or a spiritual trap. They're using both ways. And the first way they start is by a political trap. And they say this, basically, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Should we, should we pay our taxes or not? Wondering what he's going to say because, see, if he trips up and he says something against the Roman government, now that's sedition, and that's going to be instant death penalty by the Roman government, no problems. But Jesus just says this. He says, hey, go get a denarius. And they bring him a denarius, and he says, Whose image is on this thing? And they say, well, it's Caesar's image. And he says, okay, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. His image is on this. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. It's an interesting thing here, you see, because um, Caesar's image is on that. But you see, we give our life to God because his image is on us, Right? It's an interesting thing. It's an interesting kind of a, a, a duality there that he's saying, look, his image is part of, so, so the things of the world you give to the world. You give back to the world. You, you, you do these things. You pay your taxes. Yeah, we pay our taxes. We're supposed to. We're called to do that. We're called to be obedient to the government until the government does something that is, would cause us to do something unbiblical. Then we draw the line. But Jesus, Jesus says, look, his inscription is on that, but mine is on you. And I think that's our reminder for this morning about that is, that, is that the image of God is on us. So therefore, let's give back to God the things that belong to God. Let, let's be quick to be a kingdom-minded people and remember what belongs to the world and what belongs to the kingdom. And let's take our rightful place in this. The next people that come are the Sadducees. And the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, right? And that's why they're sad, you see, right? Anyway, <laughs> anyway, so they're the Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. And what do they do? They come and, they, and they, they, they try to put Jesus on the horns of this dilemma about this idea of like if this guy, he marries a wife and, and, then, uh, and then he dies and his brother uh, has to take her and, and have a child by her, and what if he dies? Another one, another one, another one. It's called Leverite marriage, and it was a practice in the day to where you left, your brother left a lineage. So, <clears throat> um, so, so basically, they, they, they say, well, whose, whose wife will she be in heaven? And Jesus answers them with this. He says, you don't know the scriptures, or the power of God. And why is it that he tells them this? It's because the power of God is the resurrection. 
There are people who, who just aren't getting it, who don't understand what the power of God is. And, and, and so they don't understand the resurrection. And, and they're standing in the very presence of Jesus who would tell them, I'm the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine. It, it's kind of like Pilate standing in Jesus' presence in the courts, as we'll see at the end of the week, or when we get to Good Friday, anyway. And he says, what is truth? When he stands in the very presence of truth, they stand in the very presence of the resurrection. Jesus doesn't say, I have information about the resurrection for you. I have a recipe about the resurrection for you. No, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's the complete authority in, in all matters of that. He is the one who can raise up. But you see, their, their questions, their questions are really only meant to trip him up. They're, they're really not meant to ask an honest and good question. But then comes a scribe, and he does ask an honest question. And, and he asks this. He says, uh, he didn't look to try to stump Jesus. He just said, what's the greatest command? Well, what is the greatest command? And Jesus told him the Shema, the prayer that the Jewish people did in the morning and in the evening. And it said, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, right? And you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And, and, and this, is the, this is the picture of, of that. You see, and, and the Shema, it means to hear. And in the Jewish culture, to hear meant to obey, they didn't have a word for hear. To hear was to obey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Uh, the word for one is an interesting word as well. It's echad. It's the same word that is used for the two shall become one flesh in Genesis. It, it is a unified multiplicity. It's interesting. It's, a lot of people would use that as a proof text, even in the Old Testament, for, for the Trinity. This idea that, that it is this, um, this picture of a, of a single multiplicity kind of a thing. And, and, and so to hear is to obey, and to obey is greater than any work that we could ever do. To obey is the, is the thing that God is really calling us to. He's not calling us out to do all kinds of works. There's all kinds of places in the, in the Old and the New Testament where, where God is saying, you're offering these sacrifices, you're doing this work, but it's nothing to me because your heart isn't in it, because you're not there, because you haven't loved me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's a saying that I like. It says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then do what you want, okay? See, but if you do that, if you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then what you want to do will be the very thing that's on the heart of God for us to do. Then he turns around and he says, to love your neighbor as yourself. The, the, the great commands, that, that Jesus summarizes the law of the Old Testament into these two commands, love God and love people, right? As he begins this whole thing of where he's, He's cutting down this whole thing, and he's making room for something that can bear fruit. 
And, and sometimes that's the thing in our lives, right? Sometimes there's some old wood that needs cut down so that new life can come, so that new shoots can come, so that new life can come into this as well. Jesus rewards him and says, you know, you're not far from the kingdom because when you seek, you truly find. And when he'd entered into becoming just a seeker, he just really wanted to know. And an honest seeking question is always met with God's grace and his answers. So no matter what your questions are, and I know you have them, I have mine too, just go to the Lord with them. But go honestly and just with an open mind asking him, and I promise you he will answer those things for you. Verse 35, he begins to tell them about this son of David title that he has, and it's a, it's a messianic title. There's, there's no doubt about it. The, the genealogy in Matthew is, is, is the way that it is to establish Jesus' lineage back to David, because David is the one who is going to have a perpetual kingdom, a king with, a, with an heir that is a perpetual king on the throne. See, the Jews believed that Jesus would be just a man, but they believed that he would wield immense power, and they're waiting for him to overthrow the Roman government. And the Pharisees absolutely hated Jesus for blasphemy because Jesus time and time again proclaimed himself to be God. Jesus was trying to explain to them that the Messiah is much more than just a man that he was seated at the right hand of power and that the, when David in his psalm in 110 says that the Lord said to my Lord, see, no son of that day would ever address his father as, or no, son, no father would address his son, I'm sorry, as Lord. And this is the last formal teaching statement that Jesus has for the religious elite around him. He does refer to this at his trial later on. But you see, the right response to this would have been the recognition of his deity. Instead, what they did was they began to make plans to murder him and kill him. Jesus quotes it again at his death in Matthew 26. See, they enjoyed hearing a lot of the things about Jesus, but they wouldn't fall on their face. Jesus then shifts to a, a warning about religious insincerity. And it's sandwiched kind of in this story as well about, with a story about a widow's might. He, he, he gives a warning to the scribes. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And so basically, he, he, he makes this warning to the religious elite and then we see this story of this widow, the widow's mite. It's, it's, it's a mite or a lepton, which were the, which were the smallest currency in, in, in their system. And it wasn't really worth anything. It was worth six minutes of a day's wage. It was literally pennies. And, and sometimes we use that as a, as a kind of a, a model for giving. And I'm not going to say that it's not, but, but the, there's, a, there's a, another lesson in this. You see, when she went up and she gave of what she had, she wasn't giving enough to make any difference in what was going on. But she was giving all that she had. And what it was was it was a demonstration of the lack of 
right functionality that the temple was playing at this point in time. You see, she has nothing. Her house has been devoured. She's a widow. What is what is what was supposed to be with widows? They're supposed to be cared for. James, right? Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this, the care of widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. If you want to get religious, God says, get religious about that. Take care of widows and orphans. But you see, she had nothing. And so this picture becomes this picture of that, that they were taking the treasury from the temple and they were continuing to just lavish the place in gold. And this widow is not being cared for. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of complete injustice. It's a, it's a picture of this thing isn't bearing the fruit that it needs to be bearing. You see, God, Jesus, God, looked at her when she put that in the plate, and he said, look at her. Nobody can give more than she can because she gave out of her poverty, not out of her. Everybody else is given out of their wealth. But she's giving out of her poverty, and nobody can give more than that. And, and, and so what, what a, a, a really cool picture because, because, you see, God sees what everybody else overlooks, and he overlooks what everybody else sees. This is the nature. This is who he is. See, offering money isn't the same as offering yourself, and she's offering everything about her. She's, her complete and total dependence is on the Lord. She needed charity, yet she still gave. And this was a warning to them. And so this becomes the culmination, really, of the, of the, of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, and a vineyard that has no fruit, and not asking to know, but with the intent to trap. See, they're consumers, and they should be givers. The Pharisees and the scribes, they've consumed it all for themselves to display their pomp, their splendor, their own glory. The temple treasuries were being used to purchase more gold to decorate the temple when they should have been meeting the needs of this widow. You see, and this widow is much more beautiful to Jesus than the gold on that temple was. We move into Wednesday, and we don't know a lot about Wednesday, honestly. What we know about Wednesday... Is, is that uh, most likely Jesus is preparing for Passover. It's a time of reflection and thought. The, Jesus is preparing for the Passover, and, and the, uh, the Pharisees are preparing to kill him, basically, how they can work that out. Mark has this, this picture of this lady that comes and anoints Jesus' head, actually. And... Um, And it says that she comes with this bottle of pure nard. And really, this is the preparation day for Passover. And, and, and she comes and she anoints Jesus' head, which was, which was typical of an anointing for a king. And nard was this, spike nard was this, this plant that grew in northern India in the Himalayas. And it was really hard to get. And it was really expensive. And, and all of the, some of the disciples were like, oh my gosh, you just wasted that, right? You, you should, that, that should have been sold and the money given to the poor right? The propensity that we have for our works, the propensity that we have to think that so many things are often wasted in worship when they could have been better displayed to the world through our good works. See, there's always the naysayers. 
But what she did was the right thing, and Jesus commended her and said, look, she's preparing my body for, for burial. She's, she's anointing my body for the burial. See, she had a great vision of who Jesus is, and she was willing to give everything that she had to just to show that, to display, to put on display that vision of who he is. At that same time, roughly, it's very likely that Judas is making the deal with, with, with the Pharisees to, to sell Jesus for 30 shekels. 30 shekels, it was the price, it was the cheapest price you could have for a slave, was 30 shekels. And he's about to sell Jesus out. She's giving what was a year's wages to Jesus. Everybody else thinks it's wasted. And Judas is about to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. See, what we believe guides our actions. She saw investment and not loss. They just saw loss. One of these had eternal significance, and one led to eternal loss. Hers is remembered forever. His was cast back into the temple and remembered no more. You see, God is always shaping our perspectives. And part of what we're called to do is to give ourselves fully as an act of worship. To remember, Mark 8, 36, what does it profit us if we were to gain the whole world and yet forfeit our souls? that there's a higher calling for each of us. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Roughly from here, we move into the Passover and Jesus and his, um, his, his having Passover with his disciples in the upper room. The Feast of Unleavened Bread basically begins that first day there, and we received communion out of that meal. Jesus is looking ahead from this point to his, res to his death, his crucifixion, and ultimately his resurrection. And we're going to leave it at this point too. And we're going to shift into communion. And we're going to take this communal meal basically here together um, as, we, uh, as we remember this Passover. And be mindful that, that Passover was this picture of God's people being led out of bondage, led out of slavery, right? That they were saved, or the firstborn of their home was saved by applying the blood to their home, to their doors, to the, to the lentils and to the, the, uh, the arch of their house. This picture of the blood applied to that home brought salvation and ultimately brought freedom from bondage. I just want to encourage you to to think about this week, to think about what Jesus was doing on our behalf, and let's reflect on what was done for us. Many times we, we take a, a moment, and it's, it's, a, it's a fine thing, it's a good thing to, to do an introspection on our lives, but ultimately, we're doing that because 
communion is really meant to, to understand what was done for us. And so, yeah, we've all got this stuff, but let's look at what was done for us. Let's recognize that all of this is for us. It's for a sinful people. It's for a people who haven't done it all right, who have fallen short. But Jesus made a way for us through his own blood shed on the cross. He was willing to walk this all out on our behalf on the night in which he was betrayed. It says that he took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he reminded us that this was his body that was broken for us. And that as often as we do this, we, we remember that, that he gave himself fully for us. And in the same way, after supper, it says that he, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for the new covenant. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and we take of this cup, we proclaim his death and his resurrection until he returns. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. <laughs>